I read a book a few months ago, and in it there's an illustration, and it's been on my mind this past week. Now, I'm not a gardener. I did start putting up a fence yesterday, thanks with the help of Elijah Hogan helping me. But some of you can correct me if I'm wrong about this illustration at any point, because I'm not a gardener. A vine is the source of nourishment and life for the branches and the fruit. But a vine, or a, it's beautiful to see a long vine that's just been, been growing and uh, helping the branches to bring this fruit. But a vine on its own can grow very wildly without organization or structure and sort of sprawling all over the ground in any direction. To make the vine grow and bear fruit in an organized, structured manner, many people use a trellis. A trellis is a structure or a framework that allows the vine to grow upwards, often weaving itself in and out of the trellis, making the vine and the fruit aesthetically pleasing and perhaps helping it to bear more fruit. The trellis supports the vine by organizing it, keeping the vine and fruit off of the ground and from being unsightly, chaotic, and food for pests. A trellis, though, we must know, doesn't cause the vine to grow. It structures it. It supports it. Keep that in mind as we go on. There are many pastors, often at, at small churches, that have to do most of the things in the church themselves. Uh, I read a story in, a, in another book I, I read recently, and he's about a pastor at a church, and he said that he was the receptionist, the administrative assistant, the worship service planner, the counselor, the accountant, the bookkeeper, and the preacher. And because of this, he said that he was stretched so thin, he admitted that he spent very little time on his sermons. And though the congregation was, was supportive of him and, and lifted him up and encouraged him, he and they felt, when they were being honest, they felt that the teaching needed a lot of work. People weren't being fed the way that they needed to. And because... The teaching of the word of God is the primary way that God grows his people. The church suffered because of it spiritually. What could the church have done to help this pastor out? What is the biblical ideal situation for a church? Let's remember the context from last week. If you guys remember last week after being uh, freed from their prison cell by the angels, the, the apostles went back to the temple, preach again, preached again, and they were caught again. But this time, after their confrontation with the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin wanted to kill them. But just when they were about to follow through on their desire to kill the apostles, Gamaliel reasoned with them that it wouldn't be wise to do so. 
So the Sanhedrin, they compromised. If you remember, they, they beat the apostles and once again gave the apostles the warning to not preach in Jesus' name. Now let's look at our text starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the apostles were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... We've spoken about this before, uh, but once again, nearly after every scene, Luke mentions the growth of the church. But with growth, with the growth of the church, comes problems. Just like the, the large number of Israelites in the, in the text that Gordon read this morning in Exodus, that led to an administrative crisis so now we're seeing something similar here. And notice what happens when the disciples are increasing. The text says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the church grows, the Hellenists are making a complaint against the Hebrews. Who are the Hellenists? Who are they? Who were they? In the 4th century BC, there was a Greek king named Alexander the Great. And uh, Alexander and the Greeks, they conquered the entire known world at the time. And because he conquered the entire known world, the Greek influence spread everywhere, spread throughout all the countries. Greek, uh, Greek influence, Greek philosophy, and Greek language just went everywhere. And it just sort of became a melting pot in, in some ways, at least with a couple of uh, the way it came together with culture. And this is why even in our New Testament is written in Greek. And this period of time when Greek influence is spreading throughout all these countries, this is known as the Hellenization period. Hellenism means to identify with the Greeks. And the Hellenists in our text were Jews that grew up outside of Israel. They spoke Greek and most likely didn't speak Aramaic, which is what Jews in Israel would have done. And these Hellenists, they made a complaint against the Hebrews. Now, the reason why Luke refers to one group as the Hellenists and the other as the Hebrews is that he's trying to demonstrate that there's a language barrier. Many Hellenist Jews couldn't speak Aramaic. Many Hebrew Jews often didn't speak Greek. Often they did. But this created a problem. There could be another reason what's going on here. There's another way to look at this, and it's not clear from the text, but the problem could be, might not have been language, but it could have been simply that the native Jews saw themselves as the real Jews and superior over the Hellenistic Jews. But whether it's, uh, it's language or because they feel superior, there is still a problem. The widows of the Hellenistic Jews were being neglected. They were being left out in the daily distribution 
of food. They weren't getting fed. And this is interesting, actually, because Judaism had a system where they would give food to widows daily if they needed it. They would give food to those who needed it. But the fact that they're not getting food means that probably the the Jews and the religious leaders at the temple cut them off because now they're identifying with Jesus. Luke mentioned earlier in Acts, I believe chapter 3, there wasn't a needy one among them. But the church, as we saw in verse 1, is continuing to grow. And they begin to start having issues. People are starting to fall through the cracks. Let's look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the complaint of the Hellenists eventually makes its way to the apostles. And when the apostles heard that certain widows were being neglected, they thought that it was an important enough issue that they needed to call together the congregation, the disciples. Somebody must have had this suggestion that the apostles need to oversee and and handle the, the distribution of food. Because look at what they say. So it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So to the apostles, handling the distribution of food for them created an even bigger problem. And remember at the beginning of Acts in, in chapter 1, Jesus told them to go preach the gospel. Uh, he's, they're going to be his witnesses in uh, Jerusalem and, and then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A couple of weeks ago, we saw how the angel, after they released the apostles from prison, they told them to go preach the word, get back to preaching Jesus. The apostles had a teaching office, and teaching was the priority. That was the mission. And so for them to focus on handing out food was to take their attention away from teaching and overall would have hurt the mission to outsiders, but also to the discipleship of those inside the church as well. So what the apostles need then is a solution where they're able to focus on the word of God but the widows are being taken care of at the same time. They both need to be taken care of. And what would that solution be? To summarize verses 1 and 2, is that what we've seen is that the growth of the church has led to a crisis that potentially threatened the mission of preaching and teaching about Jesus. The apostle solution starts in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the solution is that the apostles want the congregation to pick seven people to, from the Hellenistic Jews to distribute food to the widows. And the apostles gave the congregation qualifications that they needed to have, that they had to have. They had to have good repute or a good reputation. And we see this consistently and, and often in the New Testament. God wants the people serving in the church to have an excellent reputation among the people. Paul in 1 Timothy says that the elders and deacons must be above reproach. This doesn't create a two-level Christianity as if there's one standard for leaders and another for the regular church member. All of God's people are to have a good reputation. But for those Christians that fail to meet that standard are not qualified for an office. And so these seven men, the apostles said, must be of good repute. The second requirement is that they needed to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So basically these men were, were to be known to have great wisdom and could practically apply uh, and, and do well with working with people and thinking about how to best lead this and, and portion out food and, and th things like that. To summarize, the apostles' decision ultimately was to delegate. Taking time away from the preparation of teaching the word and praying would have only made the church suffer because the word of God is what makes the church grow. The priority is the mission and discipleship, and they needed others to take on this task of food distribution to free them up to preach and teach the word. They needed support. They needed a trellis. One last thing I want to point out before moving on. Something the apostles thought that they should also be devoted to, and this may be strange to us, is they need to be devoted to prayer. Christians, and especially well, all Christians, but especially leaders, they need to be devoted to prayer. It shouldn't be odd for, for even just friends and Christians to get together and just have a, a time to just pray. This was important enough for, for Luke to point it out, and it should be important to us as well. Let's go on to verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and uh, Timon, and Parmenius, Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So the congregation, they chose seven Hellenistic Jews, and the reason that we can say that they were Hellenistic Jews is because, and Greek-speaking men is because they all had Greek names. And judging from Stephen's sermon coming up to the Sumerians, which would have been in Arabic, 
or Aramaic, sorry. They're also most likely bilingual. And that means they could have communicated with everyone. I'm not going to go through all seven of these men, but Stephen stands out here because notice uh, Luke talks about how he meets the qualifications, calling him a man full of the Holy Spirit. And very soon, he's going to give a very spirit-filled speech. So after the congregation voted on and selected the seven men, they had a ceremony, verse 6. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. They laid their hands on them. You ever wondered why the Bible says to do that? Lay your hands on someone. When the apostles laid their hands on someone, there wasn't some sort of power coming through their hand or a transfer of authority going on in the action, the laying on of hands was a visible way to demonstrate the congregation that these seven men are being marked out as the leaders who are receiving the authority. And so what was the result of this community coming together and beginning to structure and organize the church. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God increased, disciples multiplied. Even priests came to faith. Maybe they were saying how Christianity is starting to take a structure, an organization, and, and not just some random movement. The administration and delegation of this task of food distribution freed up the apostles to continue the mission, and the church continued to grow because of it. The support of these seven men in this text helped the church grow by allowing the apostles uh, to be free to focus on teaching and preaching the word. Support helped the church grow. And the point of this text is that support, administration, delegation, the trellis is essential for the ministry of teaching to thrive. Those who are tasked with the ministry of teaching cannot do their best serving the congregation without the help of support from others. The more time spent preparing and teaching the word, the better. And the people that support teachers of the word, freeing them up to concentrate on the word, are themselves aiding in the ministry of the word. Application point one. We must understand that support ministries in the church allow the priority of the teaching ministry to flourish. God has made the teaching of his word the primary way to bring people to faith, well, 
the gospel, preaching the gospel is the only way people come to faith, and it's also the primary way disciples grow in their faith. In Romans, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. Jesus said in John that whoever hears his words and believes them has eternal life and will not come into judgment, believes him who sent me. Again, in Romans, Paul says that faith comes by hearing. In the pastoral epistles, Paul says that correct doctrine is able to save our souls. And even after conversion, the author of Hebrews teaches that mature Christians should push beyond the elementary doctrines of the faith— that doesn't mean forget about him. And those elementary doctrines that he names are, are the crucifixion, the, the resurrection. We should not forget those, but we need to start on that foundation and keep going. And he said end time judgment on that as well. And we need to press on to maturity by having a greater and deeper understanding of Scripture. And Luke, as we've seen in Acts, over and over again repeats the importance of teaching If the church's mission is to bring people to Jesus, and if a disciple's ultimate goal is to become like Jesus, and both of those come through the teaching of the word, then that means the teaching of the word is the number one priority of the church. Even though we no longer have apostles, God has given the church elders whose office is primarily a teaching office. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, it says, An overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Baptist pastor David Platt summarizes the New Testament teaching in elders by saying this. Elders can't just know the word of God extensively. It is imperative that elders communicate the word effectively. An elder must know the word and spread the word throughout the church and from the church throughout the world. He must be able to persuade people with the word, plead with people from the word, comfort people with the word, encourage people from the word, instruct people in the word, and lead the church according to the word. And so the elders, though the elders are not apostles, there's a, a difference in authority, there is overlap in that both of the offices are teaching offices. So the church needs the teaching ministry from the elders, the pastors in the church, but there are also many other concerns that come up in the church that cannot be neglected. They just can't be forgotten about. The church itself has, has bills to pay, tithings to count, and budgets to create for, for different ministries. And handling issues like this is time-consuming, and, and it isn't for everybody. We're also told not to neglect the poor and, and the widows among us, and the, so the church needs to be able to help out financially and with food and clothing if necessary to those who need it. 
Also, this church building and the outside property requires a lot of maintenance. Light bulbs are always needing to be changed. The grass mowed, carpets vacuumed, etc. And the apostles understood the importance of not neglecting the preparation and proclamation of the word and wouldn't allow even an essential ministry like feeding widows to keep them from focusing on the word. If the elders of the church had to do all these tasks themselves, then we're going to be stretched thin. And the teaching of the word of God, the, things that, the thing that causes the church to grow, is going to suffer because of it. Some small churches, as we mentioned earlier, have only one pastor, and often he's responsible for preaching every Sunday, counseling, handling finances, mowing the lawn, and taking care of everything himself. If you guys remember the pastor that I talked about in the book I read, he mentioned at the beginning, uh, he mentioned that he was criticized for his teaching because he was so focused on everything else that he didn't spend a lot of time in preparing for his teaching of the Word. But later on, certain people from the congregation were selected to serve in different areas, and he claims this teaching was so, his teaching because of it was so much deeper and thoughtful because of it, because he had more time to prepare. I'm thankful to be at a church like Milford Bible Church that is structured biblically, and we delegate, and we have committees, and we have teams that are focused on addressing all these other issues in the church, which free up me and other elders to, to, to focus on teaching Bible studies and Sunday school and, and lead prayer meetings and, and to preach on Sundays. There's so many people and things I could mention here at NBC. Um, last year, Diane Barry, she, she took the initiative to to serve members by allowing other members of the body to cook for those and cook for others and, and bring meals to those who are sick or need temporary assistance. Before COVID-19 began, Cindy Utter was here every single week without fail to organize the clothes closet and do several other things. And the deacons here, they do so much as well. We have men like Steve Hoffman who will put in days of work doing things like preparing the roof. I came to church one day, there was a massive hole in the church's roof, and, and Steve Hoffman fixed all that, I think, by himself. So that's just amazing. George and his son Jeremiah, along with Gordon, faithfully and consistently mow the lawn outside. And our staff here is excellent as well. Suzanne does uh, so much that most of you don't ever know or will ever know about or ever hear about. She answers phone calls, works on the calendars, oversees social media, creates graphics, creates and prints off bulletins, and does a ton of other things. And I don't even know exactly what it takes to keep track of finances here, but I'll go into the office and I'll look in Ron's little area and I'll see this spreadsheet out and, and some other things going on. He looks like Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting over there. I don't even know what's going on over there. But I know that I myself couldn't, couldn't do the things that he does. And when it comes to maintenance, Rich and Dennis do an excellent job as well. And if you don't believe me, just try and spill something on Dennis's carpet and see what happens. 
If you do do that, though, just blame it on Debbie, as Steve Hoffman said, and you'll be okay. And I know that there are some of you out here that, that are in these ministries that, that, that do these kinds of things, that are, that are involved in the maintenance, and you guys do these kinds of things, and then you see somebody else that's, that's maybe up here preaching, or they, they teach, or they're out there evangelizing, and they're doing this week after week after week, and you wonder, does Jesus really care about the hours I spent organizing the food, uh, the food pantry or the clothes closet, does he really care about that? Yes. Yes, he does. Your support in these areas are essential, and without your help, the teaching of the word and the growth of the church are going to suffer for it both quantitatively and qualitatively. Application two. There is a shared governance in the church. There is a shared governance in the church. Elders, they are appointed to lead, but but notice in the text we saw that the congregation was the one that identified the problem, brought it to the apostles, and the congregation was who selected who would be overseeing the food distribution. Governing in the church is not a one-man show or even a a one-office show. Baptists from from texts like Matthew 18 have historically believed that the keys of the kingdom belong to the congregation. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, what is it that's holding you back? I have to be honest with you. You're a sinner. And I know that some of us, especially the younger crowd, we hear the word sin or sinner in today's context. The word connotes some sort of naughty pleasure So know that in God's eyes, you're a criminal. Jesus said, you and I are both evil, we're wicked. And for your whole life, God has been storing up wrath for you that you will know on the day that you die. And you, and myself for that matter, deserve to be punished for the life that we've lived. God is a just God, and he must punish evil. But I also have some good news for you this morning. 2,000 years ago, our creator, God himself, walked the earth His name was Jesus of Nazareth, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And eventually, he willingly went to die on a Roman cross. And when Jesus was on the cross, though he was without sin, he he never sinned, he was considered, counted as if he did sin. 
treated as if he did. Our guilt was transferred to him on that cross. God poured all of the wrath that he had on you and me for the evil that we've done on the cross. He poured it out on Jesus Christ, if you will believe this morning. And if you humble yourself, repent, and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you will be forgiven. The Bible says that at that moment that you believe, you will pass from death into life. Repent and believe the gospel. Everyone wants to look at the beauty of the vine. Everybody wants to look at and talk about the teaching. But I think we should take a moment to appreciate the overlooked people and ministries that support the teaching of the word. We should appreciate the trellis. Because after all, the vine cannot flourish without the trellis. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the men and women here for for the elders, for the deacons, for all of the the people who support this church to help it function so that we can be here every single week. And it often, all this stuff happens, all this work goes, and it's completely almost unnoticed by most of the church. I pray, Father, that you would continue to encourage them in their work. I pray, Father, that you would encourage them through through other believers, because we often, we see it, but we don't say anything, to actually hear. If we've noticed somebody doing something, I pray that you'd put in our hearts to actually just go tell somebody, like, hey, I've seen you've been doing this, and I'm so thankful that you do this. Father, thank you that you've structured your church this way. And we pray, Father, that you would make your word the desire of our hearts this week, and that we would seek and look at your word and search it as if it were fine treasure, as Proverbs say, and that we would see the glory of Jesus when we do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.